Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox, and in Washington, D.C., is Ben Olson. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good. What's new with you in, in D.C.? Getting ready for, uh, I guess you've got a new class starting on July 8th, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so a week from now. I'm just making the last little adjustments to the materials. And then um, my wife's brother and his family, and now her parents, live in North Carolina. So we're going to drive five hours south of here to North Carolina. Oh, excellent. I'm also driving five hours south. I'm going to San Luis Obispo for the 4th of July weekend and visit some friends. That should be fun. Our Mexico trip got scrubbed uh, because Christine couldn't get away from work. So we're going to have to do that some other time. Um, it's a pretty busy time of, of year for me once, uh, once class starts again on July 8th. You got a pretty full, pretty full class coming up? Yeah, yep. Uh, trying to decide if I can uh, make room for another class. Just trying to get the rooms coordinated. So. Oh, really? You're going to add an additional one, huh? All, yeah. all full up. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, everybody's busy this time of year. Uh, people are really pushing toward the September LSAT, which, as we've talked about, it really is a good idea that if, if you're listening to this now and if it's at all possible, you should try to get yourself prepared for that September test. If you do that, it allows you to apply at the beginning of the next application cycle, and it also lets you use the December test as a backup. So... It's uh, not surprising that there would be a full boat right now. Yeah. Um, so today, I think we have a really great show. Our guest is Anne Levine, and uh, we're going to get to our interview with her in a minute. But we talked specifically today about whether uh, people should retake the LSAT. So this is for people who get the June LSAT score uh, coming out any day now and how they should make their decision of whether to retake. We also talked about um, if they do decide to retake the test, should they explain that on an addendum to their application, and how would they explain that? Um, We talked about a a ton of great stuff, and it's just great. What what else was in there, Ben, that you think people are going to like? The LSAT-GPA relationship, right? a little bit contrary to what we talked about in the Alex Johnson episode, um, and gave at least some anecdotal evidence that you can get into law schools with an LSAT score that's way below the 25th percentile mm-hmm. in, in some uh, extreme cases. I think she mentioned someone who was like a valedictorian and competitive athlete and wrote a thesis, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Point is, it, it, it is possible. It is possible, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, anyway, so we'll get into that uh, interview in a second, but we want to start today with an LSAT strategy discussion, and um, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll just go ahead and lead it off. Um, I hear a lot in my classes people who have done some previous LSAT prep, and they, when we're talking about logical reasoning, they they have a strategy in their head that they need to read the question stem before they read the actual argument. Um, what do we think about this as a strategy? So, in general, I would say no. You should read the argument, the little passage first, and then once you get your mind wrapped around that, read the question. How come? Why, why do we say that? 
Well, I'll, I'll speak for myself personally. The reason I do that is because I feel like the most important thing with a lot of logical reasoning questions is just understanding what the passage is saying. And um, in some ways to sort of illustrate that, sometimes in class people will ask me about a question. They'll say, hey, I don't get question 15. And I'll start reading it out loud to the class just so everyone's on the same page. And then halfway through reading it, they go, oh, sorry, never mind. You know, I'm good. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I'm glad I could help you. But what I think that illustrates is the fact that they just there was something about the passage that they had misunderstood or not fully grasped. And as soon as they did, everything kind of fell into place. And I, And so... My goal when I'm going through logical reasoning questions is just trying to really get my mind wrapped around that passage. And if I read the question first, at least in some cases, I feel a little distracted. Like I'm thinking, oh, I need to be looking for this or I need to be looking for that instead of just trying to understand what the heck the passage is saying. And then once I get my mind wrapped around the passage and analyze it and so on, then going into the question, it doesn't and it often doesn't matter what the question is, I'm kind of ready for anything. So, see, this is a bit of a paradox, I think, uh, because I think you would agree, question types are very, very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But... Yes, I agree, 100%. Okay, but very often you can read just the argument and you can probably already know the answer before you've even read the type of question. Yes, certainly. Okay. You, you can even predict what kind of question it's probably going to be. <laughs> you can predict what type of question is going to be based on the structure of the argument. Ab- absolutely. So that's what I think people are missing here when they, you know, to the extent that reading the question stem first, maybe as a teaching technique, maybe as just a classroom technique, I, I might say, okay, now let's look at this sufficient assumption question. And here, let's read the question stem first so that we can get familiar with what a sufficient assumption question sounds like. And then we can talk theoretically about what you do on a sufficient assumption question. But then what you got to do is read the argument and understand what's missing so that you can come up with the correct answer. Um, I, I think what people don't understand is that the argument, I could write an argument where the argument that you're going to see on the LSAT is almost always incomplete or flawed, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Once in a while, they're, they're logically sound, but it's, I would say it's the exception that, uh, that a logical reasoning argument is actually going to be sound. So you're reading an argument which is basically bad. Either there's something wrong with it, if it has, it has a flaw in the argument, or more frequently, there's just stuff that's missing. Um, you could then write a question that would ask you to strengthen the argument. You could write a question to weaken the argument. You could write a question to identify the assumption of the argument or to identify the conclusion of the argument or <laughs> any, any type of LSAT question could be written off of that same argument. Yeah. So I just don't think that there's any advantage to be gained by reading the question stem first and it says, which one of the following would strengthen the argument? Well, okay. So job one is then read the argument and figure out what's wrong with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I agree with that. Um, and that's what I would recommend to my students, and that's what I do. I guess just to 
add sort of a difference of a viewpoint here, and that in which I agree with also somewhat, and that is that occasionally I do find that some students benefit from reading it first for whatever reason, the way that they think, or you know the thought process that works best for them. Knowing what to look for when they go into the question is somehow helpful. Um, and to that point, I, I guess I would say sometimes questions. Uh, like, for example, you know, what's the main point or what what role does this thing play in the argument? Ultimately, you have to go back and read the argument, but it can save you a little time in the sense that if it's asking you what the main point of the argument is, um, you know, analyzing the argument for flaws or weaknesses or so forth is usually totally useless. And so I guess you could save a little time. Uh, knowing that you're looking just for the main point or something like that. Uh, but by and large, um, I don't think those benefits outweigh the benefits from just getting, at least personally, my mind wrapped around the passage before I go in, yeah, into it. I, I see a couple of pitfalls with this approach. So personally, in my experience, I don't think I've ever worked with anybody who has benefited from reading the question stem first. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe they've been in my class, but they've been too afraid to speak up or something because <laughs> I feel so strongly about it. But um, uh, So I teach my students to have a very aggressive, very skeptical, very critical approach while they're reading these LSAT arguments. And if you can just do that, if you can just read the argument and then tell me why the argument is bullshit, you can, you can answer any question. So I actually feel like I, I see a couple problems with this technique. The first is if you read the question stem first and then you read the argument, the next thing that you're probably going to do is you're going to read the question stem again. Um, it's human nature to do that. The question stem is right there underneath the stimulus. So if, you, if you've read this question stem once, you read the argument, you're probably going to have to read. You, I mean, you might have forgotten, actually, by the time you get done reading the argument, you might have forgotten what the question stem was anyway. So mm -hmm. you're probably going to read it again, which to me, that just makes a long test just a little bit longer because of your strategery. Um, mm -hmm. the Is that a word? Strategery? Well, that's a, the president used to say that. So <laughs> George, George W. Bush used to say that. So yeah, it's, a, it's officially a word now. Um, <laughs> the other thing, the other pitfall I think is that the question stem can actually distract you from understanding what's in the argument. So this reminds me of when I was in fifth grade doing my social studies homework and I'm the world's worst student and I was very lazy and I, uh, the assignment would be read a chapter and then answer the questions at the end of the chapter. Well, I would read the questions first, and I thought I was being smart. And so I would read question number one, and then I'd start paging through the chapter, looking for the answer. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that that leads to, to really pretty shallow understanding of what's actually in the chapter, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. How, how do you identify the, for example, how do you identify the assumption of an argument without knowing everything that is in the argument? Mm -hmm. think, about, think about exactly what a student's doing in that case. Like, oh, I'm looking for an assumption now. Like, oh, this is an assumption. I read the question stem first, and it told me that it's an assumption question. So now I know that I'm looking for the thing that's missing from this argument. Well, you literally can't do that. You can't, it's not going to be there. That's the whole point. The whole point is you need to understand what is in the argument so that you can fill in the gap. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't know if they're necessary. I mean, that depends on, that's assuming that they go back and they're like specifically looking for it that, you know, sh 
in in that shallow way. They they may know that to find the assumption, they have to identify the the conclusion and the premises, and then figure out you know sort of where the gap is between those two. But um, yeah, I could definitely see people you know falling into that trap. You know, you always need to know what the conclusion of the argument is. And you always need to know what evidence was presented in order to reach that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you just read the argument first and figure out what the argument is trying to say? Well, I, I think I think the best counter-argument to this is that some questions... Well, okay, so you're saying finding the conclusion in the premises, but not necessarily analyzing it. Because well, I, I would go ahead and analyze it as well. I yeah, and I but I, and I don't think that, that that process doesn't take sixty seconds. That process takes five seconds. You know, if you're reading critically, mm -hmm. you're saying, okay, I think this argument is probably going to be bullshit. Let's see what it says. And you mm -hmm. read the first sentence, and it looks like, oh, that's probably a premise. And you read the second sentence, and it looks like, oh, this is probably the conclusion. Let's see. Really, I don't think the first sentence really justified that. Uh, let's see if there's any more evidence here. And you read the third sentence, and it's like something that, you know, again, halfway justifies the conclusion of the argument. Um, the, I, I'm, I'm analyzing as I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And all I'm doing is I'm saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Okay, I see that this is what you're trying to conclude. Oh, here's some more shitty evidence. Nope, your argument sucks because XYZ. Now, let me see what type of a question this is. Oh, I'm supposed to strengthen the argument? Okay, so, well, here, the, the reason why the argument sucked is X, Y, Z. Now, the opposite of that would be C, Y, X, so that's a good strengthener. Yeah, you know, I just realized that I'm not going to be very good at, at defending this alternative because my <laughs> only experience is that uh, it does seem to work for some people, um, but... You know, I think maybe we need to get. Is there anyone out there that would be be good to have on this show who could make a good argument for it? Well, I, mean, I know that Kaplan teaches this method, which right there is kind of a strike against the method because you and I both know that Kaplan teaches quite a few counterproductive strategies on the LSAT. This is one of them. In fact, I think this is one of the worst offenders. Um, I think it just gets people out of the skeptical mindset that they need to have. Um, but Blueprint teaches it as well. And Blueprint has been, in my experience, the materials that I've seen and whatnot has been fairly solid. So yeah, maybe we can get a Blueprint instructor um, on the show to come and defend this. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I'm open-minded. <laughs> the, um, the door is cracked open. So, <laughs> with, with the, uh, the chain still hooked onto the... Uh, the door, you know those. What are they called? The chain. Never mind. Never yeah. Mind. Well, the security latch, the security <laughs> chain. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I am, I am open-minded, but I am also a skeptic. You know, um, not that I, this is only tangentially related, but I'm an atheist. But if <laughs> you know, if if God came down from heaven and started talking to me, I think I would give up with my atheism fairly quickly. So I, I like to think of my, you know, I, I don't believe in God. I don't, I, I think it's highly unlikely. But mm -hmm. if the evidence was there, I would believe it. I mean, I, the, I am an open-minded skeptic, I guess. And I think that's why I've done so well on the LSAT, is that I don't believe anything that, that anyone tells me mm -hmm. until they've proven it. And when they've proven it, then I have to agree. Yeah. 
All right. Well, on that note, um, we need to start looking for a Kaplan or a Blueprint teacher to come on the show, and uh, we can hash this out in further detail. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I just I have to ask this. Do you? The last time I checked Kaplan's official materials, it 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 gave the caveat that their instructors do not have to take the LSAT officially. They have to take it at a Kaplan Center. Do you know if that's still the case? Well, I do not know if it's still the case, but I do know that when I was first living in Boston, which was a long time ago, I lived in Boston for four years, I guess that was 2002 to 2006, I uh, was looking for part-time work at the time, and I walked into the downtown um, government center Kaplan office, and I said, hey, I did good on the SAT, I want to teach SAT. And they said, uh, thanks for coming in. Sorry, we're full up on SAT teachers, but um, how about, do you want to teach the LSAT? <laughs> and I said, what's the LSAT? And they said, well, um, it's a test to get into law school. And uh, yeah, you know, what you could do is you could just take a practice LSAT and then if you score high enough, then you can teach LSAT for us. And we really, we're desperate. We need LSAT teachers. And I said, I said, I ain't got shit better to do today. So sure. So they, <laughs> they put me in a room with a pencil <laughs> and a stopwatch. And they said, four sections, 35 minutes, go. And so I took the test. I timed it myself. I, when I was done, I went out and I handed it to the, the branch manager, the Kaplan branch manager, Yeah. and she was very nice, and she scored it, and she was like, wow, holy shit, that's your first time, wow, amazing, uh, yeah, you, you scored over the 90th percentile, so you're hired, and they put me into the training program, training program lasted, I don't know, I seem to recall it was something like a week or something like that, maybe 15 hours, 20 hours worth of teacher training um, where they were like teaching you how to teach, not specifically teaching you how to teach the LSAT, just teaching you how to teach. And then they said, okay, you're ready to go. Um, they immediately had me doing private tutoring where they were billing me out at you know, $170 an hour and paying me 20 mm-hmm. And wow. uh so I, I only worked there for a br- very brief amount of time, but but then you did not have to take the official LSAT, and uh, so a practice test was totally going to suffice. And the the requirement was yeah, it was only like ninetieth percentile or something like that. So one sixty seven or something would no. make you qualified. Yeah, I actually checked recently. That's a it's like a one sixty three, one sixty four. Oh, one sixty three, one sixty four. Yeah, I mean. That's to me just shocking. I, many people in the class would be scoring higher than the instructor if that was the requirement. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So on that note, I guess we should go with a blueprint instructor if we can find. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, not that not that there's anything wrong with the people who are working at at, at Kaplan. I, I would just say that if you are working at Kaplan, you're probably not working there for very long if you're any good because. I know PowerScore test masters, you know, they pay more like $50 an hour. Yeah. Whereas Kaplan, um, the other thing that I did is after I became an LSAT uh, 
professional. And I, after I already had my 179 on record, I was looking for more work as an LSAT instructor. And I went to the San Francisco branch of Kaplan and said, hey, I'm an expert LSAT teacher. I've been teaching for a couple of years. I've got all these great teaching reviews. Um, you know, what would you have for me? And they, they said that, they, that I would max out at $21 per teaching hour. What? Teaching 21? Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, wow. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and lest anyone get upset about, you know, $21 an hour being a good living, I mean, you have to remember that this is, one, it's not very much money, even if you're working full-time, and two, those teachers are only going to get, like, what, eight hours a week of worth of teaching hours? So I just don't see how anybody who was really good at what they did would stay teaching at Kaplan forever. I mean, maybe there's a higher tier of pay that they were trying to keep secret because <laughs> they wanted to pay me less, but... Well, I, yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that 21 is like, I mean, you know, people, a lot of people be happy with $21 an hour. It's just that the idea that that's the highest that you could get paid is, is shocking. I hope that's that's not true any longer. I mean, I just, like you said, I don't know how they could retain a higher top talent. Yeah, I mean, well, because I don't think even like PowerScore can retain top talent either, right? I, I taught for PowerScore for, I think, $40 an hour to start, PowerScore required a 173, 99th percentile to teach for PowerScore. Yeah. And uh, I taught for them for a while and got good teaching reviews and they gave me a raise and I got more good teaching reviews and they gave me another raise and I got more good teaching reviews and then they wouldn't give me another raise. <laughs> I think I maxed out with them at like 50 an hour, at 50 yeah. per teaching hour. And yeah. I was like, I'm looking around the classroom, I see all the people in the classroom and it's like, you know, I can do the math. I know how much money you guys are making off of this class, and I'm doing the work. And mm. sorry, I'm out of here. So mm. I, you know, I don't even. I think that there are really great instructors, obviously, at the at the test prep chains. Um, but I don't think that those really great instructors tend to stay there for very long. I think they're there for a year or two on their way to. Uh, a legal career, yeah, and I think the people who end up sticking with it for the long haul as a profession, I mean, I, I would guess that they all end up starting their own, starting their own thing. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, that'll be a, that'll be a good topic to to bring up, I guess. Okay, we'll put it on the agenda for a future show. For now, uh, let's get into that interview with uh, Anne Levine. Cool. Anne Levine is a law school admission consultant and the founder of LawSchoolExpert.com. She's the author of The Law School Decision Game, which helps candidates decide whether to go to law school. And she's the author of The Law School Admission Game, which is about how to get in once you've decided to go. Anne graduated from law school at the University of Miami in 1999, then worked in student services and admissions at three law schools, University of Denver, California Western, and Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for taking the day off. Um, scores for the June 2014 LSAT are scheduled to be released by email approximately July 7th. Uh, historically, this has been earlier. So by the time you hear this podcast, the scores are probably going to be released. And our topic for today 
is something that I'm sure Ben and Ann and I are all going to be hearing a lot of, which is, should I retake the LSAT? So, um, I don't know, Ann, you want to lead us off on this discussion? Sure. Uh, so the first thing, um, obviously, that governs this decision is that you're only allowed to take the LSAT three times in a two-year period. Uh, that's number one. Um, so right there, it might be too late. For, you might just want to stop listening to this podcast if you've taken it three <laughs> times. Or just wait until we get to the part about how to explain uh, your LSAT history or multiple LSAT scores. Um, but assuming that uh, June was your first time taking the LSAT and you do have more opportunities in front of you, the next thing uh, to think about is timing in the admission cycle. Um, is it, do I have time to A, improve my score and B, still apply uh, at an advantageous time in the cycle? And the great news about the June LSAT is that you absolutely have that opportunity with the LSAT that in 2014 happens to be in September. So you can absolutely, first you have all summer then to work on the LSAT if preparation was the reason um, you weren't happy for your score or lack of preparation. Um, and in September, you're still getting your score back in time to apply even under early decision, early notification deadlines, which are usually in November and early December. So timing is not an issue. So um, that's sort of the setup for, I think, the rest of our discussion is, is it worth it to retake the LSAT? Um, and at, in terms of the rolling admission process at this time of year, it is. Um, in terms of whether it's worth it to only improve a point or two, that's separate. Would you like me to go into that? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I think we've got tons to say on this topic, but, <laughs> but sure, I think, I think that's, an, that's an excellent point. Is it worth it if you think you're going to improve by one or two points? So most people, in, in my experience, and you guys can chime in, uh, as all fat tutors you know as well, but in my experience, people generally perform, say, two or three points lower on test day than they were scoring on consistent practice exams. And obviously we can chalk that up somewhat to nerves, to new questions they hadn't seen before, to annoying proctors, what have you. <laughs> so I think that keeping that in mind, um, it's if you came, if you prepared adequately for the LSAT and you really feel you did everything you could and your score comes back two or three points under where you'd hoped, then taking it again is sort of a gamble um, because chances are you could get the same score or lower and then you went put yourself through all that for nothing. Um, in terms of how law schools view the multiple scores, um, that, I mean, I could talk about that in itself for an hour, but basically the story is that if, if the official line is that it's the highest of multiple scores that matters to law schools, that's what they'll use in their index calculation in, in deciding which pile of files you fall into, um, which is a whole separate <laughs> podcast in itself. But keeping that in mind, um, it, that's the highest of multiple scores is the one that gets reported to the ABA and U.S. News and World Report. So even for those few law schools that say they average multiple scores, really, it's the highest one that matters. So if you feel confident that you could get two or three points higher, it's worthwhile uh, to retake the LSAT. Um, that's sort of the, the short version answer to that question. Would, uh, would Just follow up to that. Would two or three points really make a difference to a candidate's 
It could, yes, depending on what where you're talking about. I mean, the difference between a 139 and a 142 is not going to make a difference for anyone. Yeah, okay. okay? The difference between, depending on the school we're talking and the person's GPA, um, let's assume that someone has a GPA that's uh, right in the middle of what, you know, what a law school is looking for, a specific law school. But their LSAT score is a few points lower than the 25th percentile. Then obviously that makes that a reach school. But if you pull up your LSAT two or three points, that could make you at or above the median for that school, which obviously makes you more competitive. Um, and obviously, you know, even if your LSAT was initially at the median for a school you hope to attend, getting it up a few points can pay off big time in terms of scholarship offers. So two or three points can make a difference. A point, you know, not so much, but you don't really win or lose anything. If a school sees a a 158, 159, and 160 LSAT, they know that that's the right LSAT score for you. You know, it's going to be really hard to write an addendum saying um, my real LSAT score should have been a 165 when you took it three times and, and we're in the same score band of three points. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Um, in the last episode we we did, we talked about Professor Alex Johnson uh, of UVA. He has a YouTube clip which he talked very candidly about the LSAT and uh, the gap in actually the diversity gap on the LSAT. But one thing that I think Ben and I found to be really interesting was the focus on 25th percentile and 75th percentile LSAT score. Um, Professor Johnson seemed to indicate that, or at least it suggested to me that getting over that 25th percentile mark really does make a pretty big difference for your chances. And I imagine the same thing would happen at 75th percentile because that, that's where you'd be talking about scholarships, right? But well, 25th percentile. I actually think that scholarships in the last year um, at the 50th percentile and up, and oh, even really? lower. I mean, I don't think it's as big. I mean, I have clients right now with LSAT scores of 160 to 164 range who have scholarships to Georgetown. Yeah. So um, I think that we've gone away from some of that because, um, first of all, school. Every school has jumped in to give scholarships where they never used to. I mean, I never used to see Columbia Law School give scholarships, and now they are. So, And I also think schools are chiming in with smaller scholarships to make people feel a little better <laughs> about their decisions. Um, so I think that it's not as important as it um, used to be to be in the 75th percentile to be competitive for scholarships. I see. But um, every little bit does count. And, and it is important. Now, I, I admit I haven't seen uh, Professor Johnson's video, but I will be looking it up as soon as we're done talking because it sounds fascinating. But um, I think that, that people concentrate too much on medians when they're deciding on their schools list, and they need to look at 25th and 75th percentiles. And we can talk about that more um, later if we get into the topic of how to choose which schools to apply to. But basically, if you know you have one thing that's high and one thing that's low, and picking a school where your highs and lows match the 75th and 25th respectively, those are your mid-range schools that you should feel pretty good about getting into. And then if you start to edge yourself up on those numbers in, in a spot where you're more competitive on those numbers, then that's where you get into scholarship range and can feel better about being admitted, obviously. Right. All right. Makes sense. So sorry to inter interject here really quick. Um, if we don't, if you don't mind going back a little bit, Anne, uh, I think you've already answered this question by saying that schools take the highest score, but I do get people who maybe they scored a 169 or a 170 and they're, 
you know, they're very ambitious. So they're trying to get into Harvard, Yale, whatever. They're trying to go as high as they can go. So they're thinking, I should take it again because I think I can get a 172, 173, something like that. But they're also nervous that since they're already scoring so high, the chances of going down are, you know, very real. And so the question I, I feel like I get a lot is how bad is it if I have a high score and then I, like, say a 171, and then I go down? I mean, I know you're saying that we take the, they, 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 at the end of the day, look at the highest score, but I'm just wondering if since it came afterward, it looks worse or if that's something that people should even be worried about, you know, if they're trying so to be so ambitious. There's a lot of a lot of really good points. So if we're talking about that um, law school applicant who's scoring in the 169 to low 170s range, in my experience, that's an extremely savvy applicant. They um, that is someone who walks out of the LSAT pretty much knowing how it went for them. Am I right? Yeah, usually. They, mm -hmm. I mean, they, that is the applicant who, the test taker, who walks out going, I think I missed three on LR, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so so that person has a very good, what you guys might want to call spidey sense of how, how that test went for them, whether it was a good test day or a poor test day. So to me, having that applicant try again, if their practice tests are consistently, um, you know, a, a few points higher than what they scored the first time, that's the applicant who um, should try perhaps to take it again. And then if they, if that sense tells them that wasn't a great test day for me, they can easily decide to cancel and stick with their first score. I mean, this year and last year, my clients with 169 LSATs and high GPAs from good schools and interesting resumes, I mean, they're at Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. So, and University of Chicago and Berkeley and fabulous law schools. So, mm -hmm. You know, is their competitiveness increased by two points on the LSAT at those schools if everything else is really strong? No, I don't think really it is. I think that if they jump up to the 175, suddenly, you know, you know, the doors become even more open. But mm -hmm. I think that a, a candidate with a 169 and strong everything else who's applying to top three schools is just as strong with a 169 as a 171. Mm-hmm. So, and then you're saying, let's, they have the option of pulling out, of canceling their score. Um, and I guess you're suggesting they do that because you, 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 you do think that it might look bad to go down from that one seven. It looks bad, but it, it, um, so here's my preference in an application is for everything in it to be a hundred percent strong. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to introduce doubt. Okay. Yeah. So. To me, is it the end of the world to have a 168, to have a 171 and then go down to 168? It's not the end of the world. But I would also say this. I don't see that happen too often. And I think mm -hmm. I, I might see it happen more often with people who get 158s and try to get that 160 and they go down to a 156. That's more common because I mm -hmm. think that those test takers in the high 160s and low 170s have very strong judgment about how they can do on test day and exercise very strong judgment about whether to retake. So Usually, I'm having this conversation more with the people trying to break 160 than I am 170. Yeah, I think what these people are worried about is they're they're scoring 171 or 170 on the they scored it. You know, they have that score, which is yeah. good, and they're trying to get like 175, and they're afraid they're going to get one point lower. Or, I mean, the same score doesn't matter, but you know, they're they're just really worried. I think about even dropping a point like what's that gonna do me. I put doesn't it in bother, writing yeah. sign my name to it I, <laughs> it I don't care one point does not I don't lose sleep over a point and neither do the law yeah. schools there's no difference 
There's okay. no let's, meaningful let's difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the key is how many people can really get a 175? If your person who got a 170, let's say, I can't remember now what numbers are playing with. Let's say your person who got a 171 really wants that 175. Mm-hmm. If they're seeing it on practice tests, they should go for it. But if they're yeah. not seeing on practice tests, it's not going to magically happen on test day. Yeah, I don't think we can overstress that point. Um, I, you know, there's data out there that suggests that people don't improve on the LSAT when they take it multiple times, but I think that that's really just an artifact of too many people retaking the LSAT hoping to get lucky. Um, I agree. When I, you know, I see people who take practice test after practice test after practice test and score X, they take the LSAT, they score that same X, and then they tell me that they're going to take the LSAT again, and I just I don't get why they're I don't I don't understand why they're doing it because yeah I mean they might get plus or minus a couple points, but that that really makes no difference at all. So my advice to the 171 scorer who wants a higher score would absolutely be well let's look at your practice test scores. If you're scoring 175 on your practice tests, then yeah let's give it another shot. But if you're scoring 171 on your practice tests, then why would you expect that you're going to get a you know lucky, good score on on the actual day? I agree. Yeah, I think. I mean, that would be my same advice. I think it's just that they're so afraid of the loss that it's kind of they're worried about that. You know, not so much that the they're not unlikely to gain. They think that they're likely to. They're just you know risk averse to that potential loss. That's that would life. be ridiculous. That's just life. We all have to deal with that. Um, (laughs) And I think when you're dealing with very highly motivated uh, people who are used to um, excelling in everything they do, the LSAT can sometimes be that first stumbling block they ever encounter. And so it is extremely stressful. Uh, These kinds of decisions cause a lot of stress and anxiety, but I don't worry so much about that. And conversely, um, Nathan, to your point, (laughs) when someone calls me and says, Anne, um, I was practice scoring in I'm not always going to stick with the high 160s examples. It's just, you know, so many people are not even right. dealing in that realm. So let's let's pick. I've been consistently scoring in the high 140s on practice tests. Yep. And I got a 151. Should I retake? No. Yeah. <laughs> you should not retake. Um, if you do get lucky on test day, stick with it and, and don't retake. The only thing that um, would tell me for someone in that situation to retake if they did better on test day than on the real thing is if they didn't really prepare how the three of us know someone should prepare for the LSAT. They didn't take 10 or more time practice tests. They didn't, um, you know, they self-taught that they don't have a natural inclination for standardized testing. You know, all of those things, if they know how they study and and they didn't put in the time they need, because some people know that they need more time than the average bear, then then try it again. But generally, if you had a good test day, embrace it and move on. And if um, you need to explain something about your test score, deal with that on the application side. So the people who should retake the test, I I see two different categories. And Anne and Ben, you you tell me if I'm right. But I, I think that one category of people who should retake the test are you didn't prepare adequately and you're going to prepare adequately the next time around. So obviously you should not let your one unprepared uh, attempt in, influence the rest of your future. That's one, that's one group. And then the other group would be the group that, that did prepare adequately, and they know what their practice test score average was. And let's say their practice score average was 160, and they took 10 practice tests, and they got a whole bunch of 160s. And then on the day of the test, they scored a 155. 
I agree completely. Those are the two people who should retake the LSAT. Um, and I think the people who get into trouble um, are on, uh, you know, with making bad decisions about retaking the LSAT are actually who don't fall into those categories are on two ends of the spectrum. One is the very low LSAT taker who um, keeps doing the same thing time and time again and not getting the message that A, either this isn't for them or B, the way they're doing it is not right. Um, and then you have the very high LSAT taker on the other end who uh, wants to be higher, who knows that, they say, who feels maybe rather than knows that their 163 is not going to get them into uh, the school they have in mind. So they keep retaking the test, keep retaking the test. And that person really needs to start thinking about A, trying to apply to the school they'd like to attend and just seeing what happens with their scores and, and qualifications, but also maybe thinking, well, if you only want to go to law school to get into that school, and it's not a question of um, geographic convenience that that's the school, then I maybe you need to rethink why you're going to law school if you're only doing it to go to a certain school. Maybe then having that moment of realization that, okay, this isn't going to happen for me, and what else can I do about that? Yeah, absolutely. So then our next question is, if we do retake the LSAT and we do get a higher score, are schools going to ask a candidate to explain the difference? And if you're asked to explain the difference, what, what do you say? Mm -hmm. So this is different for a lot of candidates. So um, if your score is within the same score band, within three points or so, I, I don't feel that it needs to be explained. Um, that really just shows that your LSAT is positively within a certain range. Sometimes um, the, the, the reasons to explain something having to do with that um, there, there could be some that I'm not mentioning that would be very particular situations, but general times that I've seen people, uh, that I've advised people to explain it would be if there's a history of underperformance on standardized testing. And by that, I do not mean that I wish I'd always scored better on standardized <laughs> testing. Yeah. Um, by that, I, I really mean that, for example, a person came into college with um, standardized testing scores in, in, in the bottom 10 or 15 percent of their college, but um, graduated in the top 10 percent. Okay, that's a strong argument someone can make for how their LSAT score is not the better, um, is not the right indicator of their future promise in law school, their abilities. Um, that's someone who should be explaining um, scores that might be fairly consistent with each other. Um, and doing something like that is how, you know, I have a client, for example, right now who's at UCLA with a 151 LSAT because she had a 3.9 and she could make the same argument about her SAT scores. I have a client right now with a 151 who got into Georgetown uh, binding early decision. Why? Because she could say that she had the same problem with her SAT and was valedictorian of her college. You know, I mean, so, so that's the person who should be making that argument who has consistent scores within a low score band. Okay. Okay, yep. Also, um, not getting accommodations. Um, being entitled to accommodations throughout your life on everything except the LSAT. <laughs> um, that, that's worth sharing with a law school, especially if you receive the appropriate accommodations in college and, and on other things and can show that that made the difference for you. Um, th those are two examples where even if a scores don't dramatically change from each other, why you might uh, consider explaining them in your application. Okay. And, and if your scores do differ, do schools ask about that, or is, is that something that we're going to even well, have to explain? Some schools ask about it, and generally, if you have a big jump, like five-point jump, uh, some schools, for example, Loyola in Los Angeles always follows up with people and says, well, why did your score you know, improve? And other schools do it as well. 
But I also think it's a good thing to explain if you have a dramatic score increase or decrease. Um, we want to hope it's an increase, but it doesn't always work that way. And some things that are good for explaining that are just say sort of an shucks, poor judgment, retook, reapplied myself. This is a better score for me. Or um, there's, you know, you read a lot of, unfortunately, the, you know, my cat died the night before. You know, I think that's not my favorite excuse, but life happens. You know, people lose people. They go through tragedies. They get into car accidents. You know, things happen that throw a score. Um, and people exercise poor judgment by not canceling scores. And I think some acceptance and, and learning from that can come through in an addendum that I, in hindsight, I should have canceled this score. Um, that, that can come through. But obviously, you know, increased preparation is the, the best and simplest way of saying why the, the higher score is the better indicator of their abilities. What if you just said I was sick the first time? Well, I think that shows poor judgment in taking an LSAT while you're sick. And I think oh, you have I to see. own to that. I, I think see. I think it shows poor judgment to say that um, my grandma died the night before and I still went to the LSAT and that's why I didn't do well. I think that's why I really urge people, if something's going on in their lives, don't take the LSAT. Just wait, because all it does is introduce a weakness to your application. To me, it shows poor judgment. I took the LSAT without preparation. Well, that's impressive. Thanks for sharing, you know, but so you've got to have, if you are one of those people who did that, you need to sort of have an aw shucks kind of tone, say, you know, to your addendum and just own it and say, I learned a lot from the, you know, you know, the fact that I took the test under these conditions, I now, you know, have a better understanding that I should have canceled the exam. Um, when my family issues were resolved. You can see that my LSAT score improved. Or conversely, sometimes you have to do the opposite. You have to say, you know, you can see that from my first score, that's how I perform when, um, you know, when I got sleep the night before. And the second score is obviously how I perform when I had the flu. And I, I was actually hospitalized three days later and it didn't occur to me to cancel the LSAT and what have you. You know, I mean, there, there are different ways you can do it. But I do think that, um, simply saying, I shouldn't have taken the test, or I was sick, or this or that. Well, that's why you're allowed to cancel. That's why you have now, you can withdraw up to, what, two or three days before the test. The so, night before the test. The night before the test. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, you couldn't do that. So I think taking advantage of those options shows better judgment. I think sometimes people think of it the other way, like, oh, I don't want to be a quitter. I signed up. I'm going to take it. No, I mean, you have the option to pull out. You have the option to cancel. It, sometimes that shows the best judgment. So are you saying that if you had multiple scores on record, you would, if they were, if they were different, would you always write an addendum about the scores? If they were significantly different, I would. So even um, optionally, you would, you would. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a four to five point difference is, or more, is something that schools sort of go, huh, what, what's going on there? I think a brief and uh, I want to emphasize brief yeah. um, addendum explaining why the higher score is the, the better indicator of their abilities is always appropriate in the application when there's a big score differential, especially if we're talking about eight or 10 points, because that doesn't happen very often. Interesting. Um, ben, do you have, you have questions for Anne? Well, I guess, uh, I mean, I think we're kind of touching on this, but maybe, Anne, if you have um, more to say about when to cancel, I guess um, I was kind of under the impression before that uh, when in doubt, don't cancel. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe you agree with that or maybe not. I'm just wondering, what circumstances would you advise people to cancel before, after they've taken the test, they went and took it, 
um, but they're not sure, you know, what they got. So the, um, you had an interesting um, way of phrasing that. So, so um, whether to cancel. Um, so j- some people are alarmist by nature. Um, um, I think there are some certain, there are times when, you sh- when someone should absolutely cancel. Um, if, um, you know, they, they got physically ill during the exam, um, like, you know, had to walk out of a section, didn't finish a section that they normally finish with plenty of time. Um, if, um, something really threw them, they really knew that something went wrong, especially if it's their first time taking the LSAT and you have the two more times. Uh, and the, I mean, you don't have a lot to lose there. Um, if, if there, if you're, if it's very obvious something went wrong, okay, that someone should cancel because they're not going to A, get a score that, um, is representative of their abilities or B, get a score that will put them in range, perhaps the schools they'd like to attend. And to be honest, C might be the most important, which is it can be completely demoralizing for someone to see that very low LSAT score compared to what they know they could do. Um, and it sort of, uh, they feel like they go through the admission cycle with this uh, rain cloud over their head and it's not necessary. Um, then you, have, then you also have people who want to keep every score just to know how they did. And again, we get back to judgment um, being sort of a key, a key thing uh, in a lawyer <laughs> is judgment. Um, so, so part of that is, in, you know, not explicitly, but it's a little bit part of what you're being tested on. Um, judgment in taking the LSAT when you're ready. Judgment in canceling a score that isn't the right score for you. Judgment in what you put in your law school applications. You know, it's, that's what that's a big part of the test here. And so, um, it, repeat to me, Ben, exactly what you asked. Cause, um, and you may want to edit this part out, but you had a phrase in there that gave me an idea and then it, it just popped out of my head. Oh, I guess I, in general, I would advise people to keep their score unless it was really disastrous. And so it sounded like you were suggesting, you know, there might be more opportunities that we might actually want to, cancel. And so I was just trying to get a sense of, you know, your lay of the land in terms of when would be good to cancel and when when would be better just to keep the score. And this is assuming someone has taken it and they're now, you know, in that six day window when they're trying to decide whether or not to cancel. So um, just to add a little bit to uh, what I said previously about when to cancel, if you're in a situation, Ben, where one of your students is asking these questions, you have a really good sense I hope I would think of how that that person prepared adequately for the test and whether that person is naturally alarmist and anxious or whether that person has a pretty good sense of their abilities and um, can accurately gauge how they did on the LSAT. And so I think you have to trust that person and your knowledge of that person in guiding them in that respect, obviously. But generally, you know, if someone's, you know, I can pretty much tell if someone calls me, asks me whether to cancel, whether they're, making themselves nervous for nothing or whether something really bad happened. And I think that's really the key. Um, And of course, if someone already has a test or two on record, a score or two on record um, that are close to where they want to be and they feel that this test really wasn't as good as their previous, then I I may advise that person to cancel. But in most cases, I'm probably like you, that if, if I'm really on the fence and I really can't decide based on what someone's telling me that this score really is not a good representation of what they can do on the test, I'm inclined to say, keep it. Um, 
unless they're giving me a real reason why it's why the test is not going to be in that ballpark of, of scores that they'd like to see or expect to see. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that I need real concrete information to guide cancel an exam. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason for my presumption is that I had kind of thought, well, since they take the highest score, and I think Nathan would would agree with me on this, uh, I'm curious, but um, since schools generally take the highest score, if you're not really sure, you know, what's the sort of risk? But it sounds right. like you're saying there's a little more risk maybe than what I had previously thought, because no. even though they do take the highest score, it's better if you, you know, use your judgment and apply with hopefully the, the just a score if you can. I think the key in what you're saying is the, the key part that I'm glomming on to that, that I want to make clear is if someone's not sure how the test went. If they're not mm -hmm. sure, they should keep it. Okay? Mm -hmm. if, yeah. if they have a sense something really went wrong or they're now realizing they should have prepared differently, don't keep it. Okay? But, but I think that's the key. They're not sure. They're not sure and it could have gone either way. I'm not inclined to have some, that person cancel their score. Um, the, other, the other piece of it is... Yes, of course, my first preference is to have someone take the test once, knock it out of the park, and be done. That doesn't happen very often, okay? So, um, yes, I always prefer to have there be one strong thing in an application and not introduce potential weaknesses. Absolutely, I did say that, and I stick by it. But I don't see multiple LSAT scores as being a weakness. I think that most of my applicants have two or three LSAT scores on record, and I don't necessarily see that as a weakness, especially where there's consistent improvement. And often that happens, for example, with international students and um, English as a second language um, applicants. They, they, it takes them a little longer, naturally, to grasp a very sophisticated exam. And so, no, I, I'm not someone who's against multiple LSAT scores in the least. What I'm against is people sort of taking it without considering before they take it. Yeah, I mean... Uh I think there's there's two different types again. There's there's the students that are in my class or in Ben's class who have done a whole mess of practice tests who know exactly what they should be able to expect on the day of the test. And when those people call call me or call Ben or call you Ann, it's in my experience 90% of the time they're just like talking themselves into a panic attack. Correct, and it's our job to talk them off the ledge. Right, so my advice usually is, well, I know you were prepared. How did it go? Did you have a, I mean, did you have a blinding migraine headache? Or did, you know, was there, was there some sort of a, uh, did you have to leave the testing room at any point? Um, because if not, you probably should keep that score. Um, I agree, 100%. Great, okay. And then um, for, for the other people who call, and these are the people who, sat for the LSAT cold without doing any preparation. I um, love these people who always find me or find you after they've taken the test. Right, yes, sometimes like they've they already taken it twice. Like they start Googling Ben, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, and, and the tragic part about that is that there are so many released practice tests where you can, there's nothing stopping you from doing 10, 20, 40 of these practice exams and knowing exactly where you stand before you walk in on your first day. Just really just no excuse, um, I guess, other than ignorance for, for not doing that. But that's okay. It's, I also want to put something out there, because many of those people will be listening to this podcast too, that that is not the end of the world. Many a successful law school applicant tried it the first time and 
um, realized their mistakes, got serious, and became very successful sure. in the process. So that's not the end of the world by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not ideal. But I would say of all the law school applicants, maybe only 15% have ideal circumstances, right. if that. You know, I'm probably being generous. Um, and that really, uh, you know, lots, most applicants, more than most, um, the majority by far of applicants have some less than perfect thing in their law school application. And if taking the test the first time without adequate prep is your thing, it's not the end of the world. It's completely um, (laughs) surmountable, overcomable. And it's just, it's good to realize it now rather than after you took the test the third time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you you said that you'd like to talk about uh, how to pick LSAT schools, or how to pick schools based on an LSAT and GPA split. Do you want to go into that a little bit? I'm happy to talk about that because I think that's something there's a lot of confusion about. If you're an applicant who has a very strong GPA from a good school and has really engaged herself or himself in intellectual, interesting activities, extracurriculars, internships, and travel, and, and, and will have strong letters of rack then having an LSAT score a few points below a school's 25th percentile doesn't bother me in the least. I mean, you'll be a competitive applicant there uh, with everything strong in your application. Um, so don't don't um, be afraid of reaching in that case. Um, and in the case of someone who has a good GPA, maybe not excellent, but good, but had some obstacles to overcome, for example, supporting a family while in school or being... Um, English as a second learner or a second language learner or, um, you know, any number of, you know, obstacles that they overcame, you know, um, joining the military after high school to pay for college, what have you, and your LSAT's a little low. Again, you're someone who can reach a little higher and not be so married to a school's median or 25th percentile, all right? Conversely, if you're someone who didn't take college that seriously or couldn't for any number of reasons, but your LSAT puts you in the middle range at a school, then, then that's a good target school for you. Now, this is so hard to do on a general basis, right? Because when I am working with a client, I'm looking at everything about that individual. So I can say, yes, this person had a 2.8 GPA, but it was from Berkeley, but it was 10 years ago. And since then, they've had a very distinguished career as a professional. And their LSAT is a few points low for Hastings, but that's okay. You know, that's easy for me to evaluate. Um, but to doing it hypothetically in a way that addresses the entire potential audience for your fabulous podcast, you know, that, that's harder. But I think that if you know there's something strong in your application, then you can reach higher. Um, people who have, let's say, a GPA that's not even a 3.0, and an LS- they need that LSAT score to be in that 75th percentile and uprange of a school. They need it. I don't care if that undergraduate GPA was 20 years old. I don't care, you know, about the number of years the person's been selling real estate or what have you. If, if someone has a low GPA and a low LSAT score, it, it's, that's not someone who should be looking at some, you know, at, at, that's someone who needs to look at schools where at least one of their numbers is at the 75th percentile. They really need an LSAT score at the 75th percentile to pull them up. That's not someone who's going to get into a school where both of their numbers are below the 25th. That's just, it's a non-starter. Yeah, I, I see an awful lot of that. I see, I see a lot of people, I mean, I, I guess if, 
if you have one school that's your dream school, I, I like to say, you know, okay, that might make sense to go ahead and fire in an application, even though you're kind of a long shot. But if the bulk of your applications are going to be to schools where you've got less than 25th percentile on both LSAT and GPA, that just seems like setting yourself up for failure. I agree. I mean, I, I think that pe people um, sometimes... You know, the, the most uh, popular, I, I started writing, I wrote my first article on my blog on very low LSAT scores, was the title of it, in 2007. That was a long time ago now. I've been doing law school expert for 10 years. Yeah. This is my 11th admission cycle. So in 2007, I wrote a blog post, very low LSAT scores. To this day, it is the most read, most commented upon post on my entire blog. <laughs> okay. And these are individuals who have LSAT scores in the um, 130s, 140s, sometimes low 150s. And um, oftentimes these are people who also have very low GPAs, who did not go to extremely prestigious schools and who have not had that illustrious of work histories, generally, from the comments that they leave. And I always try to respond to every comment left on my blog. So I do know the stories. And these, for these individuals, they really are facing an uphill battle. Okay, and the, these are usually people who I actually, you know, when they call me and want to work with me, these are not people I will work with because I feel that they're not going to be successful in the process. And even if by some miracle they are, these are people who are very unlikely to succeed once they get into law school. So unless there's something in their background that shows me they have what it takes that isn't demonstrated by their numbers, those are people that I, honestly, I, I, I think that those are people that have to have a very honest conversation with themselves about how realistic their goals are and whether this is going to, to work for them. Can I ask a follow-up on, yeah. on that? Um, you mentioned that an LSAT score below the 25th percentile is not necessarily a killer if you've got the right. GPA or if you've got other factors um, that, right. can, that can justify that. But is there a limit... Um, again, this video, and Anne, I'll send you a link to it, the, the Alex Johnson um, video, mm -hmm. he was saying that at least at UVA, there is a floor where they wouldn't admit someone with a, an LSAT score that was uh, too far below the 25th percentile because he feels that it would be unfair to that candidate, that that candidate would not be able to compete academically. That's right. And so what you have to do is you have to have something else in your file that shows you can compete academically. Hence my client with a 151 who's at Georgetown, right? What's because, the 25th percentile at Georgetown? Well, I'm not looking at my rankings right yeah. now, but let's pretend it's a 167. Yeah, I mean, that's, okay? that's way below. It's, it's way below. So why? Because this is someone who went to a very good undergraduate school, was a Division One athlete, and had a 4.0 and wrote a thesis. Yeah. Right. So, and that's the person who can show, see, all these other things are a better indicator that I can compete at a UVA than my LSAT score. That's the person who's getting in. Absolutely every time. Interesting. Hmm. You have to have something on your record that shows you can compete with the students once they get there. Um, and that's often a conversation I have actually with my clients who are international students. And uh, many of them completed college in the States, in which case, great, we can show that, yes, I went to University of Michigan and got a 3.8, even though it wasn't my first language. Um, you know, and, and so the LSAT's more of a struggle for me, but you can see that I have no problem competing with intellectual people. <laughs> and um, and so, so, you know, it, it, likewise, so let's take the person who's a science major, right? So their GPA might not show they can compete in law school, but their LSAT score probably will. In that case, that person can say, see, my LSAT score shows I can compete. 
even though my GPA may not, because I majored in chemical engineering and there was a 2.3 curve, right? So, I mean, the whole point of this for a splitter, the whole point of what you're allowed to share within your application is to show them why you can compete, even though your numbers may not display it. But you must have facts to show that. And the people who do not win in the scenario are the people who write essays or addenda with their applications that are pleading, like, I know I can do it. If I'm just given the chance, I have the will and resilience. Uh, no, that doesn't get you there. You have, you're, a lawyer, you're trying to become a lawyer. You have to use facts to make your argument. Okay? Tell this to people all the time when they're drafting their personal statements. Where are your facts that are proving your conclusion? Right? You can't just say, therefore, I will be successful. Therefore, I want to practice public interest law. Therefore, whatever, without the facts to back it up. And explaining your LSAT scores the same way. Excellent. Um, I think we've covered this topic pretty well. Um, I am curious, and you, you mentioned that you've been doing law school expert now for 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. I guess you've seen the business change quite a bit. What are, what are you working on these days? Well, in terms, in terms of what? What am I seeing from the applicant's point of views? or ah, Just the whole landscape of law school admissions? It's, I would say that I've really seen it through three phases at this point. When I started in 2004, um, when I started Law School Expert at that point, it was very, there wasn't so much focus on, um, there wasn't as much focus on rankings and employability. I rarely had conversations with people about those issues, um, Mm. about those topics, um, and almost never had conversations about scholarships. Um, And now, then in the middle years, I'd say during the recession years, 2008, 2009, um, you start talking a lot more about the Wall Street Journal and New York Times articles about big law and employability. And people started to be more concerned with scholarships, which I only see as a good thing for applicants. Um, and now what I see is applicants are so incredibly savvy. Um, they really, it's just amazing what they know. Um, they you could argue that many applicants probably know more now than I did when I was director of admissions at different law schools, you know, because the internet has just exploded and they have access to so much information. Um, Funny enough, and you may want to end up editing this out. I don't know, but uh, someone recently tweeted me, uh, sent me a tweet. I don't know what, how you say it. They they tweeted to me that, um, that thanks so much for writing the book. They use it in advising law school applicants. And I'm thinking, oy, oy vey, you know, like um, you're reading a book and then you're advising applicants. The applicants can read the book. Yeah. You know, they, they don't really need you to read the book and tell them what the book says about applying to law school. I mean, applicants are pretty savvy right now. And so we, applicants are asking really smart questions for the most part. And they're being very smart um, on the set, what I call the, the second half of the admission cycle, which is after they get the results and their scholarship offers. Applicants are so much more savvy now. Um, it, that, that's been really interesting to see. If you are one of those applicants who's going to sit around and wait for a school where you're waitlisted to call you, um, you're not going anywhere. I mean, you, you need to be proactive. You need to talk to schools about the scholarships you've been offered in a professional way, you know, but um, those are the applicants that are really seeing fabulous results in the cycle. Yeah. So, so it's definitely change in those respects. Um, numbers were still down this last cycle? I'm sure we are, but they don't have much more to drop. And um, in a lot of ways, the, the, 
Yes, this is a good time to apply to law school for those people who really want to go to law school. Absolutely. And for those people for whom law school is paid for. Okay. Um, And it's, but I really see that applicants are thinking this through now. They are thinking it through. Even after they've applied, they're thinking, is this really the right thing for me? And, And after they see where they get in, knowing where I got in, knowing the scholarships I got, is this something I want to pursue? Uh, that level of sophistication is um, is good and very welcome. And I always tell my clients at the beginning of the process that my goal for them at the end is to have some decisions to really wrestle with. That, you know, six, nine months out, I want them to be saying, gosh, I got into this rich school, but I got this scholarship to this other school. And I, I want them to really suffer through that decision. And I because I feel that whatever they choose in the end between those things, they'll be much happier with their law school experience and, and in their careers if they really thought about the decision going in rather than just blindly going to the best law school they got into. Absolutely. Um, any plans for a third book, Anne? Well, actually, yes, now that you mention it, Nathan. Oh, so, really? um, Yes, I have a... Lo- um, Elvira Kras, who was the... Um, who was my research assistant on the law school decision game. And she's, she's a client I worked with, of course, several years ago, she just graduated from Columbia law school. Um, I think she and I are going to work on a book, um, interviewing people who got jobs right out of law school and how they got them from all different law schools and all different lines of legal work. Oh, that's great. I'm not a career advisor. I always say that is not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is on the getting into law school, but I, I have unique access to, um, new crops of lawyers. And so I think I, I should take advantage of that and interview them and and, um, and share that information with people who are thinking about going to law school and who are in law school. So um, when that book will come out, I'm not sure. But uh, but it's as soon as Elvira is done with the bar this summer, we're going to start sending out some surveys. That's awesome. I'm, I really love what you did with, um, well, with both of your books. But it sounds like this one's going to be a little bit more like the law school decision game in that you're going yes, to do more interviews. Yes, very interview-focused. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I, I will never claim to be. So any of my Amazon reviews that talk about how this isn't a statistical survey, boo. I get it. I never claimed it was. Um, but I think that there's a lot to learn from people's individual experiences and um, and how they do things, and I think that the stories are incre- are sometimes more meaningful than uh, the the statistics. And so I, I I tend to fall that way and leave the statistics to others. Awesome. Um, <laughs> if people want to find out more about you, and I guess they just go to lawschoolexpert.com. Lawschoolexpert.com. It's my cell phone number on the website. Um, all of the contact forms come directly to my inbox. I'm always happy to answer questions. I offer free initial consultations. And for people who are just at the beginning of the process, I really do feel that spending three hours or so reading the law school admission game um, is worthwhile. And I think both of you guys are quoted in, a, in the 2013 version uh, about the LSAT. So I, I mean, it's the most extensive LSAT chapter I've seen in a law school admission book. So I think just there alone, it's, it's worth the price. It's fantastic. All right. If you want to reach me, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. Anybody have anything else they'd like to add? No, thanks so much for coming, Ann. It was was fun. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to hearing your future podcasts. Hope to have you back soon, Ann. Thanks, guys. Thanks. 